This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Ross Gallagher, Ventures Director here at 11FS. In this episode, we are putting the big tech back into fintech as we discuss the ever-growing overlap between technology giants and finance. We've seen no shortage of companies like Google, Apple, and Facebook in the news over the last year. And as technology becomes more central in our relationship with financial services, big tech will only have a more critical role to play in the future of our industry. So we want to take a step back and understand exactly what big tech's role in financial services currently is and where they sit on the banking battlefield. What are the use cases? What are the risks? And will we eventually have to do our banking through a VR headset? To discuss this, I'm joined by a truly mighty panel of industry experts. Firstly, it's a big hello to my colleague, my co-host, Kate Moody, Strategy Director here at 11FS. Kate, great to have you with us. How are you doing? Yeah, it's doing really well. Nice to be nice to be here and excited to hear the conversations go through. Really cool topic. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. Um, we are also delighted to welcome Paul Worthington, Head of Regulatory Affairs at Innovate Finance and formerly the Public Policy Manager at MetaFintech. Um, Paul, great background. Really great to have you here to share all of your insights. Maybe you can just tell us a little bit more about yourself um, and, 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 as I say, your background. Yes. Um, hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, my name is Paul Worthington, Head of Regulatory Affairs for Innovate Finance, um, the industry body that represents the global fintech community in the UK, um, advocating for a regulatory environment that supports the sector uh, growing in the future. As you mentioned, um, prior to that, I spent three years working on Meta Fintech. So spent a number of years working on digital assets um, and looking at projects like the Libra, which I'm sure we might touch on. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. As I say, great to have you with us. Thanks, Paul. Uh, also joining us this week uh, with Dave Birch, Principal at 15 Megabytes. Dave, welcome to the show. Great to have you. Maybe you can just tell us again a little bit about yourself and what you do. Uh, sure. Well, I'm uh, an author, advisor, commentator on digital financial services. I'm Global Ambassador for Consult Hyperion, which is a specialist technology consultancy in the electronic transactions field. And I have a couple of board and advisory positions, a couple of academic positions um, as well. Nice. Awesome. Yeah, thanks again for jumping on and sharing your insights. And lastly, it's a big fintech insider return for Sam Moll. He's your old friend. He's my old friend. He's our old friend. <laughs> now an advisor for companies including Capital IG and We Arrival, formerly the key account executive at Google. And eagle-eyed listeners may well remember Sam as a former host of Fintech Insider. So Sam, look, welcome back. Great to have you, as always. Um, Maybe for those that don't know you, Sam, maybe you can just reintroduce yourself. Sure. I love that you called me the key account director yeah, at Google because they only have one, everybody. It's a very yeah. small startup um, that just took off. So um, I'm similar to Mr. Birch. I've been around FinTech way too long, um, way before there was Fin or Tech. And um, I'm enjoying myself being an advisor to a few companies right now. Um, actually joined a board and I'm about to start 
the next great thing, which I can't announce yet, unfortunately, but it's coming. All right. Again, we'll take your word for it. But Sam, great to have you back behind the mic. Um, and look, great to have everybody. So thank you all for joining. Um, and with that, let's let's dive into the show. We'll use this first uh, this first section to uh, look at how big tech became such a big player in the the finance space. You know, where did it start? How big is their footprint today? Um, Dave, I mean, maybe you can just set the scene for us a little bit. And we talked in the uh, the the opening uh, the opening bit about this that sort of banking battlefield. Do you think big tech now is a, a sort of serious player on that banking battlefield? I think. Um... I think you have to distinguish between sort of two fundamental categories. I hate to start off like a consultant, but I am a consultant. So there, there are these. So first of all, there's a fundamental distinction between what you might think of as fintechs and tech fins. In other words, there are companies whose revenue comes from financial services and use technology to do that in new and interesting ways and engineering. And there are companies whose income comes from technology and they use financial services to grow that business. And so obvious examples, you know, you have cool people like Stripe and Adyen and so on, which are financial, but they use new technology in interesting ways. So, uh, you know, Stripe, I mean, I, I can remember advising a very big acquirer at the time when Stripe was launched. Stripe launches the next morning, everyone's talking about Stripe and one of the guys in the office said, well, there's there's nothing to this. We could have done this. It's just opening up some APIs. Well, you know what you could have done, but you didn't. They're a fintech. They're doing what you do, but they're doing it with new and better technology in new ways. <clears throat> That's distinct from someone like Apple, who uses financial services as a way to to basically sell their other services, their technology and their subscription services. And so I think you have to sort of distinguish between the two. In the first case, um, which I personally find very exciting and interesting, and one of the reasons why I love that business so much is because that technology roadmap keeps moving, there's always new technologies which we can use to deliver financial services in new and interesting ways. And, and I'm trying to think of an example that's not completely obvious. So I'll use uh, I'll use an example which is ultra wideband. Ultra wideband is a comms technology that's built into the new iPhones, the new Samsungs. Well, not new; it's been around for years. Shorter range than Bluetooth, longer range than NFC. Has the interesting characteristic that it can locate you to an inch or so, and it knows whether you're moving forwards or backwards. Someone is going to use that to deliver something interesting and new in financial services. So there's always something new coming along like that, so that's great. On the other side, you have network plays or platform plays who come up with different ways of using financial services. Now, the low-hanging fruit is and always has been loans because pricing loans more effectively if you have more data is quite an easy business. But there's other elements of leverage coming along. And I what I'm sure we'll touch on later on is X or Twitter, as it was called, or Twix, as it's as it's known only to me. Um, you know, launching a payments business. So, so as a, a long way of answering your question is, <clears throat> there are these two different categories. But yes, in both categories, things are moving and they're exciting and fun and interesting. It is interesting, isn't it? And I suppose you, you touched on a couple of things. I suppose some of those those sort of tech advances. Um, that are that are sort of enabling some of those uh, these new propositions, I suppose, in terms of what um, is also driving it. Um, certainly, on some of the the tech fin side, is expanding the value 
um, of the ecosystem, as you said, for for customers and sort of I suppose that that customer stickiness. I suppose, um, Paul, a question that or I suppose something that often comes up when you talk about the risk of these tech fins to financial established financial services players is, oh, they don't want to get licensed, they don't want to deal with all of the regulation. How how much comfort can we? really take from that do you think from a, 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 the, the the perspective of those established players so i think i think we're now in a political and regulatory environment that means that whatever moves these tech firms make into financial services there's going to be intense scrutiny no matter what form that takes i feel like i to be honest it, it feels like it was 10 years ago since i first read a topic of tech firms getting into finance and i think the regulatory landscape has shifted immeasurably in that time and I think you can point to things like Project Libra as something that's kind of had a real catalyst on the regulatory side. Um, but from a regulatory perspective, I think, you know, building on Dave's points, I think big tech firms face two main challenges as I see it. So first, you've got like the specific financial services regulation that all firms need to meet if they're undertaking a regulated activity like payments or lending. If they want to be the regulated provider, they obviously could be the partner if they want to go down that model as well. But where it gets more complicated for big techs, I feel, is the growing debate and focus on non-financial services rules and regulations, which kind of gets to Dave's point around platforms. So looking at kind of competition, data protection. So for big techs, it's not just a case of wanting to offer, you know, a type of lending or payment product. It actually becomes a discussion on the role they play as an online ecosystem and platform. And what that means for competition, how it could impact financial stability. And it's the intersection of these financial services and non-financial services rules that make the regulatory question really difficult in terms of like, like what the best market entry option would be, but also how the regulators should respond to that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that is that, that I, can, I can see how that poses an interesting policy and sort of reg challenge because it's, a, it's, it's kind of almost a a non-defined space at the minute, right? And it's it's hard to sort of react to that and actually really put in place regulation that um, that is fit for purpose, I suppose, in that sense. Not to, uh, it's, it's a difficult question. We shouldn't get too far into the um, solutionizing at this stage because I think we'll probably move into that in the next section. But what what does good look like, Paul, in in, in that space at the minute? Are, we, are there any examples of where regulators are sort of moving outside of, uh, moving in front of the pack and um, laying that track, I suppose, as it were, in terms of in, encouraging that? that type of behavior? It's it's a really good question. And I'd actually say like this is still one of those policy and regulatory areas that I think at the international level, they're still, I would say, scoping out the kind of debate and potential solutions. And I think part of the problem here actually is that you know, we're talking about big tech, like it's this monolithic thing, but actually, as we all know, kind of market and region kind of specific examples exist about what entry looks like. So thinking about the regulatory response is actually going to be something that individual com countries need to think about on a case-by-case -case basis. So I wouldn't say there's like a leader in this space. I mean, you could point to the kind of efforts that certain countries like China have done in terms of kind of like getting their arms around kind of what regulation in that space looks like. But I think it still feels like regulators are kind of in the information gathering phase to kind of understand what they would want to do. I think that's actually a, a, a very difficult question to to get into because it 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 assumes that the the regulators have some kind of strategy or goal, which is not clear to me really. The the we've just in the UK we've just had the Ghana review of payment services, you know, a national review, 
of payment systems. And the key finding of the report um, by Joe Garner, who used to run Nationwide, I mean, he knows what he's talking about. Um, I think his key find, I don't have it in front of me, so I'm paraphrasing, but his key finding was, you know, no one's got a clue as to what we're supposed to be doing. I mean, he, he said it in a more polite way. He said there was no evidence of any actual strategy or he said there was no vision of an end goal or, I mean, but basically no one knows what, so, you know, what regulation should be doing sort of depends on what the strategy is. And we don't have the strategy. If the strategy was to, I mean, I'll just pick a couple of random examples. Suppose the strategy was to reduce the cost of financial intermediation by a third over the next 10 years, for example. That would be a because the cost of financial intermediation now is double what it was a couple of generations ago, despite laser beams and transistors and so on. It's it's gone up, largely to do with, you know, compliance and so on. Or is the goal to um, you know, increase the net welfare of payment systems by 20% over the next five years or something. Like, there, there are no actual goals like that. So I think it's very difficult for the regulators to know what to do. In the absence of any actual agreed strategy, what's what's happening at the moment is that the regulators are basically responding to whichever... I mean, you know, if you're a regulator, you've got MPs on your case all the time about people losing money in APP fraud and all this sort of thing. So you tend to respond to that. There's no actual sort of global vision. Now, that's good and bad in the sense that because there is no strategy, that means new tech can come along and do interesting new things and get off the ground. Um, but it's also negative in the sense that the costs of complying with stuff downstream could be vast. So I, I think it's difficult for regulators at the moment. Certainly in the UK, there's no strategy. So you don't know what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Thank God for the U.S. because we've just got this down. I mean, <laughs> from a regulatory standpoint, oh my God. Global leaders, everybody. Global leaders. <laughs> That's sarcasm for those that haven't heard my voice in a while. It does raise a really interesting question because, well, or at least a really interesting point because it means they're always going to be reactive. To your point, Dave, they're always going to just be reacting, responding to what's happening in the market and what are those big sort of headline issues rather than having that joined up strategy and sort of working towards something. Um Sam, my my question to um, Paul, I think there was almost an implied um, sense that um, established financial services firms should be wary or concerned about um, these big techs coming in and playing in this space. What's the view from you know from having been inside one of these big techs, Google? How do they think about this space? Is it and 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 does it line up to that, or is it actually different, more nuanced? What is it? I think that's an incredibly um, complex question. One that I faced probably within the first month of working for Google on the cloud side, because I was responsible for selling into, you know, the largest banks in the world and a very good friend of mine. Um, um, I'll give him a shout out here, um, John Piazza, who I think a lot of you know, who's now um, at, at Fifth Third, if I remember right. He asked me, are <laughs> when, when Google is putting together the Plex project, if you all remember that, and was working on Plex, so dipping their toe into banking and platforms there, he said, are you a, we're trying to understand what Google is. Are you a frenemy? Are you a competitor? Why in the world would we do this? And, you know, come to find out Google killed the project, right? Um, absolutely, which Google does very, very well because Google can. 
Google can invest a ton of money in something, right, Mr. Birch, and then kill it. Well, it it, it does. Um, but actually, I, I draw a slightly different conclusion from from the story, Sam, because I think now you would approach that yes. in a very different way because historically you had to have all of these bilateral arrangements with the different banks and all these negotiations. In Europe, it sort of took a different turn because we pushed open banking sooner. So, so I think nowadays Google would probably go down what I would label uh -huh. the Apple path. So Apple, you know, bought an open banking company in the UK and has put its toe into the water. It's like you don't want to do deals with banks. You just want to use open banking to deliver better services. And, and I think that's probably what will happen in the US. So if you were starting that project again now, you probably wouldn't start it in quite the same way. Um, yeah. I mean, essentially, they were, they were rip, not ripping, but they were playing off what they had done in India, right? If yeah. you look at the team yeah. that was behind Plex, it was the team that they had brought in for India who had some success in the platform. And they did an amazing job in India. I mean, yes, they absolutely did. amazing job in India. But it's it's a different infrastructure here. And also, I think the banks probably again. You're going back three, four years, and you know, I I was involved in some of those workshops looking at bank strategy. And and the thing is, the banks. So so if you if you sort of think about that relationship, you know, I mean, I, I'm really oversimplifying here, but you know, you could imagine you've got the sort of manufacturing of financial services, and then you've got the distribution of financial services. And that was the kind of Harvard Business School example that we all grow up with. You know, manufacturing has a lower return on capital. You know, distribution has a higher return on capital, blah, 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 obviously because manufacturing is more heavily regulated and it's a volume business and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden you come along with this new thing that wasn't there before, which is like the packaging of financial services that goes in the middle. So now banks have the manufacturing, the packaging, and the distribution. On the manufacturing side, you're competing with other banks, and you have what I probably traduce the term, but you know, you have theory of mind. In other words, if you're trying to compete with other banks, you kind of know how they think, and you can construct strategies to compete with them. If you decide to compete on the distribution side, which is the higher return on equity side of things, you're competing with people where you have no theory of mind. You're a bank. You have no idea how Apple thinks or X thinks or, you know. Plus, you've now got to be not just as good as them on the distribution side because they already have the distribution. You've actually got to be better than them to shift anything on the distribution side. And that is tough. Look at all the stuff that was going on on LinkedIn last week about HSBC. Wait, was it HSBC? Launched their Wiser-like thing and yeah, saying, got yep. all this criticism it's really hard to compete on the distribution side so actually for some banks um it might be more realistic to just as some banks are thinking about doing you know focus on delivering through that packaging layer you know great new but actually just give up on the distribution side in which case the big techs are absolutely your friend because because they're your channel to millions and millions of customers. So I, I think it's very difficult. And I, I think some of the lessons learned four or five years ago, like, like Sam's example, I'm, I'm not sure they're that useful now because, because the landscape is shifting. Also remember the regulators want more, in, in most jurisdictions, certainly here, the regulators want more jurisdiction. They want, the regulators want more competition. You know, they 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 want to see new people coming in, and 
you know, but the barriers to that are quite high at the moment for various reasons, you know, and so on. So, so I think trying to sort of say what's the best strategy towards this, I think, is difficult because it depends on what the bank wants to do. Where does it want to go, you know? Yeah, I agree. Could I, could I add one point here as well, if, if possible? I think w there's also a potential danger sometimes in these conversations that we slip into this idea that because these firms have got potential massive distribution kind of channels in terms of X billion consumers, that therefore they will, that will equate to the customer base in, in reality. And I think that's a definite possibility, but I think sometimes the way that kind of the conversation folds, particularly among central banks, is that, well, you know, this company has 3 billion users, therefore they will get 3 billion customers, therefore this is a systemic risk. And I still think there's a case for like, you know, product market fit is still a thing. You have to build products that people want to use. Um, and that's true for these firms as it is for you know, traditional incumbent uh, financial institutions. But when regulators assume that from the beginning, you're going to have 3 billion customers, that in itself creates a problem for those firms to get into the market in the first place. And Kate, so I think that's a really good point to sort of bring you in. Like, what does good look like in this context for customers? Because I think we've talked about, right, well, what are some of the reg drivers? What, you know, what's driving it within some of these um, these big techs and what's the, the the lens from those established players? But actually, really, I mean, Paul makes such a great point. If this doesn't resonate with customers, it doesn't matter. Yeah, and I think that's where you know, the evolution of big tech within financial services has been has been super interesting. Like I try to think back to when I first started using lots of these things. And you can't remember because it's been such a steady sort of drip, drip, drip of just seeping into my life. Um, and I was trying to think before this episode, like when was the last time I actually properly engaged with my main bank? You know, all most of my payments go through my Google wallet. Um, you know, when I shop online, most of the time I pay with PayPal. And I just think like, that that's the kind of thing which is really interesting. Like that kind of engagement is is just drip dripping away from those traditional banks. And so the the positive to you know, the, the point of the panel really is this increase in competition. Like as a consumer, I now have so many options for how I pay, where I hold my savings, you know, where I access credit. But I think kind of the the customer challenge that I think we're increasingly seeing is because customers' financial lives are becoming more fragmented. Actually, a lot of the opportunity for helping people get to better financial outcomes is by helping them connect all these things together. Like actually, you know, should you be borrowing that or should you be taking that money from your savings? Can you afford to take that loan? How much is your salary? Where is that sitting? How much is your mortgage? Should you be overpaying your mortgage? All of these connections are, are where at the moment customers still have to do the, the calculations themselves. So yeah, definitely positives for customers in the prevalence of choice. But I do think we're going to increasingly see some customers start to look for somebody to help them stitch some of these things back together because it's becoming very, very desperate and quite difficult for customers to keep track of all these little ebbs and flows of their money in different places. I think you're, I think you're absolutely right, Kate. And I think your point, I mean, we, you know, we, we don't want to be too sort of futuristic. I mean, we, but, but you are pointing towards the area where by far the biggest disruption in financial services will come, and that's AI. And that's because what you've just outlined there is absolutely correct as a vision for the future. We would all, I'm sure, agree with that. I really don't want to spend an entire day of my life 
on the 2nd of April, looking at different ISAs to work out which is the best ISA for, I just want to press a button and have it sorted by, you know, a bot that's FCA regulated under duty of care, and I never have to think about it. Um, but the reason why that's so disruptive on the financial services side is because as a financial services organization, a bank or a PSP or, you know, but a financial services organization knows how to sell financial services to people. If you go to a credit card issuer and say, well, I've got an idea for this new co-brand card, I'm going to do these points and that rate, they have 50 years of experience to say, okay, you need this much above the line, that much below the line, you need this much print, you need that much TV, it will cost you X dollars to get Y market share, you know, it's because they know everything about selling to people. But how your bank will sell to my bot, I think is a very different question. My bot doesn't care about your stupid bank logo. My bot doesn't care that you sponsor the rugby. My bot doesn't care, you know, that you're this many years old. My bot doesn't watch your impenetrable advert on TV, which no one can make head nor tail of. There's a horse on a space station, and this is something to do with mortgages or, you know, whatever. like my bot doesn't care about any of that. So you have to start thinking if you're seriously going to compete in that financial health world that Kate's outlining, which I, I completely agree with. I think that's a brilliant vision. Like, what are you going to sell and how are you going to sell it? Like, how do you sell your loan product to my bot? Because you have to start selling on things that bots understand, like service uptime, reliability, data accuracy, you know, you know millisecond response times and so on, and not oh, you know, here's our new logo and it's it's not as pointed as the old one or whatever, you know. As the ex-Googler, I'm so happy you said AI first, Dave. I have been holding back, but thank you for going there. Well, if, you, if you're talking, but if you're talking long-term, Sam, it's, this is what big tech ultimately is going to, you know, it's going to be AI that is the most disruptive thing in financial services since the mobile phone. 100%. And but then, but then, one thing for me, right, that I think is an interesting hurdle that needs to be overcome more immediately in relation to AI, and particularly financial services firms using AI. There was an interesting report that came out um, last week by Comply Advantage that looked at um, AI fraud specifically and how AI is now being weaponized. Um, and actually, those documented use cases of how it's now getting past. Um, what we would have previously considered very secure biometric standards and all of those types of things. But even if you put that to one side, because I don't think necessarily that customers know that that is widespread, um, it's not a major concern, there is a whole heap of distrust among financial services customers about their banks using AI at all, even if it's actually to protect against the risk of AI fraud. And so... It feels like there's still an awful lot of work to be done to probably educate consumers around AI, to build trust in terms of like using AI as a technology. Uh, let, let, yeah. let, let, let me stop you right there, Ross. Let me stop you right there. This is what, you know, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to paint everyone with the same brush, but whenever I hear someone say we need to educate consumers, I just draw a line under it right there. Any Fine. strategy that relies on educating consumers is absolutely doomed. It's a complete waste of money. I, I am completely the other way around. I think we should get customers out of the equation. Yeah. 
right? The, the, the FCA can regulate and certify bots and ensure that they implement duty of care and blah, blah, blah. You know, what customers do with it, they can't. People do really stupid things all the time. The, the, the way to improve customers' financial health is not to try and educate them. I, you know, that you're on a hiding to nothing. I live in a country where 50% of people don't know what 50% means. So where you think your financial education is going to come from, I'm yeah. blank. No, Ross. But isn't that the problem? No. Isn't that the problem? No. Get Should, people we shouldn't out the just loop, accept. Ross. We shouldn't just accept zero financial education because that's where we are today, and that's the baseline. Surely we should strive to be better and empower people. You need to, to spend more time. More with, you need to there. spend more time with people outside <laughs> of right. fintech, Ross. And so we're going to work on that. You need, you need to get your Tinder profile up. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, maybe. Just saying. <laughs> my wife. My wife wouldn't be thrilled with that. <laughs> yeah, good point. <laughs> I once worked on a project about consent, about you know people consenting to 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 certain things, legal things, I should add. And I remember going to a workshop. I think it was, I think it was UCL. I can't remember. I went to a workshop at a university. They'd been doing some research on this. And the guy said, well, of course, if you want to get consent from consumers, it's going to take some time. You have to put these boxes up. You've got to get them to tick this. And somebody in the audience said something about informed consent. The guy said, if you want to get informed consent from consumers, that's going to take 15 to 20 years. Because in some parts of the country, you're going to have to teach people to read first, you know. So I just, if we want to really help people, then we get bots in there as soon as possible. Honestly, bots should be choosing your mortgage, not you. Nice. It's dystopian, but I don't disagree with you. And that <laughs> is why I'm standing yeah. for Prime Minister. That's You've my, got my vote. You talk me around. That's my, that's my campaign speech, Sam. Get people out of the loop. That's my campaign. Um, I think we've strayed into this already, but just for pure punctuation, um, I'm going to say that uh, we'll take a quick break, and next we're going to come back. We're going to look at uh, what really is changing the way that financial services operate, and you know what customer expects with their products and services. So we'll be back after this break. Please don't go anywhere. Welcome back to FinTech Insider Insights, where we are looking at big tech and finance. Now there's clearly some huge potential there, and it feels like we're only really today at the tip of the iceberg, which is amazing, but also maybe a bit terrifying. Um, I guess, uh, Sam, one, one sort of thing that is kind of rattling around the back of my mind is I suppose the the sort of the the cultural difference between some of those very old established traditional banks and then um these uh these big techs in terms of how they approach um developing new products I suppose that that old saying like move fast and break things comes to mind do you feel that there is a sense that maybe um you sort of big techs playing in this space will be a little bit more ambitious, a little bit more innovative? Um, I do. Um, I, th I think one thing you have to note, and this is probably somewhat unique to the U.S., is, you know, in our environment, we, we really have the big four banks, you know, traditionally. But, you know, the reality, now you have the big one, and that's JPMC. I mean, just in, in the fourth quarter last year, they pulled in almost $50 billion in annual net income and that the best ever, ever in the history of the US. And this is JPMC invests about $15 billion a year in tech. So when you talk about big tech in the US, JPMC, well done. I mean, they're they're a player, you know, 
And there's roughly, I don't know, I always get this number wrong, somewhere between 4,500 and 5,000 banks and other 5,000, 6,000 credit unions in the U.S. We're a very complex um, uh, ecosystem, and yet all the money's at the top. So you take, you take the big four, so I'll say four or five, um, and, and tech and the same when it comes to banking, right? I mean, it's just, it's an unbalanced ecosystem, to be fair. Um, and you can see why, you know, for example, Google, where I worked at, um, is, is partnering up like crazy, as is Microsoft, as, you know, is Amazon, as is Apple, hello, Goldman and the whole Apple card. Um, right now, that's the play. Who are you partnering with? Who did you choose as your partner? And how are you moving forward? And I got to give Microsoft a lot of credit with OpenAI because they basically kicked Amazon and Google and a couple others in the ass with ChatGPT when it came out. It just took a tremendously... If you, if you would have said two years ago that Microsoft was going to be the leader in AI, I don't know, Birch, if you would agree with me or Paul, I would my eyebrows probably would have gone up a little bit. Said seriously, and that's where we're at today. We're playing catch up to Microsoft. I mean, you know, it's a it's a trivial thing to say. You know that IBM didn't invent DEC, didn't invent DEC, didn't invent the IBM PC. They didn't invent Windows. Windows didn't invent Facebook. Facebook didn't invent Twitter. Twitter didn't invent TikTok, and so on, of course. And I I wonder if it may be that we haven't quite seen that in AI yet. So. So, you know, we see the, like the big moves, but, you know, there could be some kids in a basement somewhere who are, who are just doing something unbelievable with it that we can't even imagine yet. So I, I feel the AI thing is a long way of playing out. I think I, I'm confident in making the prediction that, you know, within the next generation, AI will be the most disruptive technology. I think everyone can see that that's true. But what exactly it will be... I, I'm not qualified to answer. I mean, I'm not even sure if we've seen it yet, really. And you look at, I mean, look at NVIDIA, for example, right? When you look at the largest companies in the world by market cap, you got Microsoft right now, number one, Apple number two, Google at number four, Amazon at five. NVIDIA's at six right now, ahead of Meta, ahead of Tesla. I mean, just there you go, right? You want to see something moving fast? Actually, Meta's... It's interesting. Meta's an interesting case study, I think, Sam, because I, yeah, let, I neutralize it away from Google a little bit. I don't want to tread on any toes, but, <clears throat> you know, Facebook, like on paper, Facebook pay should be an amazing success. It isn't really, um, you know, on paper, Libra should have done really well. It didn't. Uh, on paper, you know, everyone was excited about Google's metaverse, um, Facebook's metaverse. Well, they weren't. Everyone's excited about the Apple goggles that are coming out in a couple of weeks' time, which cost three and a half thousand dollars, and people are more excited about that than they were about the. So I mean, Meta is a really interesting example of. I I don't understand why they don't have a more powerful play in financial services. Uh, maybe it just wasn't a focus in the company. I don't know. Yeah, I agree with you. And you throw marketplace in there, right? Um, you know the data they sit on. I agree. Facebook Marketplace is a disaster. Like I just I saw a thing from, I think, Santander or HSBC in the UK. They said, and I thought this was a very shocking figure, they said a third of all the listings on Facebook Marketplace are fraudulent. And I was just <laughs> stunned. I was like, only a third? Are you sure? It's like, what metrics are you using? This feels like a really sort of 
I mean, first of all, Paul, I kind of meta background want to give you the, the 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 chance to to sort of step in. I suppose you could make the argument though that maybe while Libra itself wasn't a success, I mean, it definitely pushed the conversation forward, right? I, I think that's that's I think that's even understating it to be honest with you. Um, I think actually, if you look at the reaction in, in the years subsequent to Libra, like did it launch? In its in original intention, no. I mean, people forget there was a piloted version that did launch that we did get to market, uh, albeit briefly, and before the product was uh, project was wound down. But in terms of advancing the conversation on the future of digital money and the future of you know, central bank digital currencies, I mean, I mean, central bankers have been open, standing on stages, saying Look, we we were not really taking these issues as seriously until Libra came along. So you know, I think when when the, this chapter of kind of like the history of fintech is written, it'll be an interesting kind of like mention for, for Meta's role in the sense that, you know, it, it moved the, the kind of dialogue and kind of thinking about the future of digital money without actually having that kind of like depth of penetration. But, but I am curious to ask, but I can't remember the context, but I remember, <clears throat> I want to say money 2020, but maybe it wasn't, but I remember... I remember giving a talk, I mean, it's a few years ago, I can't remember where, and I used Facebook as the example of cooperation because I, you know, actually, let, let's use Facebook Marketplace as the example. Like, imagine there was a rule which said, you can't list on Facebook Marketplace unless you've done KYC. Anybody can buy on Facebook Marketplace, but you can't list on Facebook Marketplace without KYC. Facebook Marketplace would then be faced with, you know, spending all this money setting up a KYC, or they could just partner with banks that have already done the KYC. You know, there, there's there's win-wins here where, but they might not necessarily be around the traditional payments business. They might be around other things. And with the scale of fraud at the moment, I mean, I don't want to, everyone's sick of hearing me say this, but you've, you've got to look towards digital identity as a potential area of win-win cooperation here because... The, the corporation doesn't always have to be about payments and about money and about fees. There are other things that banks do, other functionality, risk management and so on, that, that actually could, could be part of this. So <clears throat> I think perhaps in the future, there'll be a wider, uh, perhaps in the future, there'll be more different kinds of cooperation between banks and fintechs, you know, not just transactional. But I think, I think the, just kind of relating it to other technologies you talked about when I mean, you mentioned like VR, like personally, like, you know, if, if you think about the way that smartphones have transformed how we live our financial lives, it's natural to think about what's next. And assuming that VR experiences and technology improve, for me, it does raise the question of like, well, is that the next thing in combination using AI, et cetera, where we are going to see real change over the next 10 years? And we're talking longer term here. So it's less about, for me, entering my virtual reality bank branch, but more about what does it mean for the future of digital money, commerce, payments, where actually some of the use cases could get really interesting? I mean, how far are we? I mean, you're absolutely right with that, Paul. I mean, if you think about how quickly we went from having, you know, personal computers to mobile phones to, you know, now, if you take the Apple goggles as a starting point, um, okay, they cost $3,000, $3,000, they're this big and whatever. But how long will it be before you you buy your first Apple Eye? You know, the II, so to speak. You know, five years time. Like in like if Apple have an eye in 10 years' time, and it, it's just like my eye, but it's got a zoom and can see at night and you know, you can record. 
but my eyes are not that great. You know, I mean, I would, okay. you know, a three and a half thousand dollar. Yeah, well, you know, that's what you pay for a tooth implant. I mean, come on. Well, hang on. Okay, so what do you think would need to happen for customers before we start like subbing out body parts? Oh my days! It's just giving me too many flashbacks to those scenes, like Minority Report, when Tom Cruise has his eyes taken out, which I'm still traumatized by from watching that as a kid. So I, I mean, yeah, I, I, that's a, that's a long way away, and I feel like we could spend a whole amount of time, like yeah, thinking ahead to the future. I suppose I'm interested. I'm interested in. I'm interested in what's like happening in sort of the the near here and now. Like I'm. Yeah, but I think it's it's very difficult to predict what customers will be willing to accept because what customers are willing to accept is based on so many other things across all the different parts of their life. So what customers feel is normal in financial services will be influenced by what happens in entertainment, in sport, in arts, in culture. All these things come together. So, yeah, I think we have to wait and see. You know, the, the rap guy that I saw in the newspapers had all his teeth taken out and replaced with like a metal sheet you know Kanye so, West, yeah, Kanye West. Blanc for a second so uh lots of people I mean if you look at the amount of money that's spent on cosmetic surgery now you know as soon as as soon as some pop star or film star or whatever has some new eyes put in I mean everyone's gonna go for it so I don't think it's that far away and I don't think it's that crazy how much do people spend on cosmetic surgery now how much do people spend on tattoos now you know, and they're not even useful. At least with your zoom eye, it would it would do useful things, especially when you're driving. I'm with Dave on this one. I, I think when you're talking near term, Kate, and we've all kind of touched on it already. I think it's how is AI going to be blended into financial services and you know consumers' acceptance of it. How do, how do we see that blend? We're already seeing changes. I think you know Google faces a significant challenge because search is changing like crazy, and AI has done that. You know, my kids don't use. Google search. They use TikTok, they use Instagram, they use YouTube. They're they're never. Uh, it's very rare that they go on on Google search. And even now, you know, my my son is addicted to ChatGPT. Yeah. No, that is a really good point, and that is that is a fundamental shift that maybe some of us didn't even notice, right? And and actually sort of gives credence to to Dave's point that actually some of those maybe the things that are going to underpin some of those bigger changes that we're talking about, they've already happened. And actually the things that we're talking about in terms of what will be some of those bigger shifts actually aren't that far away. It's definitely and None of one this is new though. None of this is new. It's how do consumers hack the tech you put in front of them? Hmm. Consumers, people do this all the time. Just to back up Paul's point on that, you know, if you look at the actual, I haven't got this month, but if you look at the actual media engagement figures at the moment, we think that old people like us use Facebook, broadly true. You think that uh, younger people use TikTok, broadly true. You think that even younger people are mucking about on TikTok. They're not. Their engagement is already in Minecraft and Roblox and the, the sort of proto-metaverse places. So I, I don't think it's a wild prediction to go down that route at all. I really don't. I agree. No, I'm starting to agree with you. Um, I'm going to wrap this up because actually I think just sort of leaving people on the precipice with a little bit to wonder about is probably a good place to end this one um guys thank you all so much for joining me let's just quick uh quick whip round where can people find out more about you all um dave let's start with you uh .com. perfect thank you dave paul how about you yeah thanks for having me today it's been a bit of a bucket list item doing this um you can find me on linkedin where i post about fintech policy and regulation if that's your thing and also you can check out innovative finance on all the main social media channels i can't imagine that not being somebody's thing i imagine that 
subscriber list is going to be huge. It's um, huge. Yeah. <laughs> Sam, how about you? Oh my God, since Dave had to promote himself, I'll do that. Uh, Um, And definitely on LinkedIn. Wow, speaking about subscriber lists, I'll be over on sammall.com. Um, <laughs> all right, and Kate. I need a retirement, everybody. Yeah, Come on, let's go. Happy to help with that. Kate, how are you? Um, yeah, I don't have my own website, so it'll just be just be LinkedIn for me, uh, Kate Moody, or you can drop me an email, kate at lemonfest.com. Excellent. And as uh, as Dave would say, you can find me on Twix at Ross Gallagher 7 uh, Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please do follow our podcast. And don't forget to leave us a review because it really does help us to make the show better. And it also helps other people to find it. As always, if you'd like to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much and goodbye. Thank you.